by our um, fabulous MFA poet, Lester Robles O'Connor. Um, but I want to make a, at least one announcement first. Well, two announcements. Monica Yoon's book, Ignatz, is for sale over here. Um, check it out on, on your way out. And also, um, I think it's a good idea that if you, if you need to leave before the reading's over, that you exit through the rear door, not walk in front of the um, podium, as has happened. So, <laughs> just a thought. Okay. Very, very pleased to have Monica here today. Um, and so, take it away, Lester. Hello. Um, I'm very honored to introduce Monica. You and here for you tonight. Um, her poems have been published widely in many prestigious journals, such as the Paris Review and Tin House. She's also written two books of poetry, the first being Barter from Grey Wolf Press from a few years back. And during the day, it's really dark in here. And, dur- and during the day, and I'm sure during the nights too, she is an attorney for the Brennan Center for Justice in NYU, directing the Money in Politics Project, where I believe deals with trying to limit corporate influence in political campaigns. Is that accurate? Okay, great. <laughs> But then she still has time to write beautifully terse poems. And I was quite struck by her latest book called Ignatz. And just for a little bit of background, um, the, the, the title from the book comes from a character in um, George Harriman's comic strip, Crazy Cat, that was syndicated in many newspapers in the early half of the 20th century. Um, in, in the comic strip, Crazy Cat has an interspecies crush on this mouse named Ignatz. But unfortunately for Crazy, the sentiment wasn't mutual. Um, throwing bricks and, and, and other nonsense. So part of her project here is to explore this energy that comes with unrequited, unrequited um, desire, continuing a familiar theme in lyrical tradition, but through uh, more complex and evocative forms. Cole Swenson actually articulates this much more eloquently than I'm capable of when she writes that Yoon... Let's the question of desire overflow the human to impinge upon language itself as she enacts it wonderfully in her emptying out of the ignat signifier through the sheer inexhaustibility of its potential. So, um, <laughs> so other than the obvious inspiration from the comic strip, and believe me, you don't really need to um, have read the, the script to appreciate Monica's you know, skill, her imagery, and her humor. Um, she draws upon inspiration from a diverse array of poetic influences. Some of her poems are, um, they, they vary in tone. Some of the poems recall like the rhetoric of early canonical epics, while some are sharply focused imagistic vignettes. And they're all employed with like incredible precision and craft. Uh, Monica Yoon's been showered with many awards and recognitions, receiving fellowships from the Library of Congress, the Rockefeller Center, and the Stanford University. And well, I don't know if, but if you purchase the book maybe later, you'll probably find a shiny medal in the corner as now she's been recognized as one of the five finalists for the National Book Award for 2010. So without further ado, let's um, congratulate Monica Yoon on her latest accolade and welcome her to the podium. Thank you. Is that okay? I think it's perfect. Yeah. Sorry. Let me just open the water because I might need it. Okay. 
Let me try not to spill the water on any electronic equipment. Um, thank you so much for uh, that wonderful introduction, and thank you to Ray and thank you to Anna for inviting me here and setting all of this up. Um, I think I wanted to explain a little bit first, uh, since we're all writers here, about what drew me to the crazy cat uh, myth uh, in writing this book. Um, as was explained, uh, Crazy Cat is the story of a cat who is in love with a mouse. Uh, the mouse does not love the cat back. Uh, the mouse is constantly beating the cat in the head with a brick. And it's a very, very simple story. It has three elements. It's cat, mouse, brick. And George Harriman, the cartoonist here, um, wrote a daily comic strip about it uh, that was published daily for 30 years, 1914 to 1944. And pretty much every day has that cat, mouse, brick, cat, mouse, brick, you know, sometimes in different orders. But it's really kind of, um, as, a, as a sustained exercise uh, of this kind of, as, as a sustained study of this modular cycle, it's really hard to match uh, the kind of intensity of this focus. And I had been thinking a lot about narrative and about narrative poet, uh, poetry, and I don't generally like to write straight narrative because I find that the kind of mechanics of the story end up taking over what originally drew me to the topic in the first place. I tend to want to write about kind of one contour of an overall story, but you end up having to tell the entire backstory. And so I thought of this as a way to kind of explore the some of the tropes of narrative, including character development, uh, including setting, that sort of thing, without having to be encumbered with the, uh, with the mechanics of narrative. And I also thought of it as a way to explore the concept of repetition, uh, and especially of obsessive repetition. I mean, anyone who's ever played a slot machine or played Tetris or whatever knows that, you know, the it's not the thing itself that's fun. It's not inherently fun to pull that lever or to move that little falling block. It's more just there's something about the repetition itself that draws you in. So it becomes the cyclical nature of, um, of the activity as opposed to the, ob the ostensible object of the activity that's... Uh, that is the real focus of interest, and I think Cole's quote picks that up when she talks about the emptying out of the signifier. I mean, that's exactly what happens. You forget what this was all about in the first place, and you know what this is about in this book is this faceless cipher who is called uh, Ignace. And uh, the book is structured in four sections, um, each of which starts with a little song, and each of which uh, ends with a little death. And um, and each of the, um, the four sections is associated with a particular aspect of Ignatz, because one of the features of obsession is you treat the object as kind of a figurine. You place it against a, uh, you know, various settings, and you see how it functions in that setting, and it becomes this ever-present ever foreground element against these settings. So Ignatz is figured here in four ways. Uh, the first way is as lover, the second is as hero, uh, the third is as criminal, and the fourth is as fugitive. And so I'll be reading these sections in turn and kind of, you know, since we have some time here, reading kind of a few poems from each of the sections. So let me start with the first section, which is the lover section. Uh, the, setting here is, um, the setting here is the desert. Oh, Ignatz, won't you meet me by the blue bean bush, robed in the loveliest robe of the year? 
Five ripe dewberries on a sweet gum leaf, a dark red love knot in my short black hair. Ignatz invoked. A gauze bandage wraps the land and is unwound, stained orange with sulfates. A series of slaps molds a mountain. A fear uncoils itself, testing its long, cool limbs. A passing cloud seizes up like a carburetor and falls to earth, lies broken-backed and lidless in the scree. Acetylene torches now snug in their holsters, shot backs trundled back behind the dawn. A mist becomes a murmur, becomes a moan, deepening the dust-choked fissures of the rock. Oh, piteous Ignatz, oh, come to us by moonlight. Oh, arch your speckled body over the earth. Ignatz Obad. And Obad uh, is uh, kind of a traditional love, uh, love poem that's usually done in the morning. It's a kind of morning song, uh, basically saying, you know, Romeo and Juliet is the classic example, like, oh, it's so nice being here in bed with you. Uh, if only one, hadn't, one didn't have to get up out of this bed and face the day. Ignatz Obad. Star maps of broken capillaries, crown of infrared, song of drifting dune, the smooth, bold trees of his interior, blossoming and unblossoming. I spent six days almost touching you. Landscape with Ignatz. The rawhide thighs of the canyon straddling the knobbled blue spine of the sky. The bone-spurred heels of the canyon prodding the gaunt blue ribs of the sky. The sunburnt mouth of the canyon biting the swollen blue tongue of the sky. The hangnailed fingers of the canyon snagging the tangled blue hair of the sky. The blistered thumbs of the canyon tracing the blue-veined throat of the sky. The sleep-crusted lids of the canyon blink open, your soft, your cerulean eye. Letter to Ignatz. Oh, my dear devoir, oh, my dear devour. Your name, an arrow with a rope attached, could pull this raft across this river. Oh, bring me my ordinary, my trays of soot and sand. For tonight I am a window in a cottage by the sea. Oh, mia paloma blanca, oh, my desert dune, my dove, who now will sing the praises of a natural love. The Wedding of Ignatz. Wait is the end of wanting. The simples gleaming in their rests. In the game called hypothesis, an orange is gripped between the chin and shoulder, then is transferred with care and laughing to the chin and shoulder of the next in line. Then a flaming log is rolled into the river. Then a chalk circle is drawn around each plate. One day I walked to the window robed in the loveliest robe of the year. One day I knelt down by the fountain 
a crown of parsley, a crown of dill. One day my hands closed on the handles. A match tip was placed beneath my tongue. Listen to me. Someone has tricked you. There was never an apple. This is the first death, the death of Ignatz. Fallow lies Ignatz, his salt hands, helpless, wicking moisture from the air. Second section, uh, setting is a highway leading to a beach. Oh, Ignatz, won't you play me like a filigree flute? I'd trill any tune it might please you to hear. Oh, sweet Adeline, eau claire de la lune, your song my only voice, your breath my only air. Afterwards, Ignatz rose and, without taking his leave of them, opened the sliding glass door and vanished onto that lightless beach. And there were those who later said that he never opened that door, that the molecules of glass parted at his touch, or still others, that he stepped through the glass door as some of his brothers might move swiftly through a downpour while never being wetted, for as his brothers were to the common run of men, so it is said that Ignatz was to his brothers. But the truth of it was that Ignatz slid open the door, stepped through, and slid it shut again so smoothly and swiftly that to distinguish one action from the other would be to count the blades of a flying helicopter. And that good door, well greased in its gasket, did not betray him by a single ill-timed creak, so that by the time they saw that he had gone from them, his dark head was already lost in the black waves of sand and the black waves of water. And even then, there were those who would have gone after him and had risen from their seats with brave and defiant words, but they were stayed by the wise counsel of others who admonished them that it would be as well to tether a missile with a filament of spiderweb as to dissuade Ignatz with their pleading from his chosen itinerary. <laughs> Ursatz Ignatz. The clockwork saguaros sprout extra faces like planaria stroked by a razor. Chug, say the sparrows, emitting fluffs of steam. Chug, chug, say the piston-powered ground squirrels. The tumbleweeds circle on retrofitted tracks, but the blue pasteboard welkin is much dented by little winds. The yuccas pulse softly under the grow light sconces. Here is the door he will paint on the rock. Here is the glass floor of the cliff. He'll enter from the west, backlit in orange isinglass, pyrite pendants glinting from the fringes of his voice. The death of Ignatz. The mesas sink to their knees and let the snickering dunes crawl over them. Uh, section three is set in a ghost town, and the aspect is Ignatz the criminal. Oh, Ignatz, won't you dress me in your lead-lined coat, proof against passion, resistant to tears? I'll stroll through the streets with a safeguarded strut, set up shop in the kissing booth, buyer beware. At the free clinic, 
Ignaz snoozes with his head down on the second-hand classroom desk, with his elbow on the part of it that curves around to support his elbow so that he can shut his eyes against the bend of his own arm, with his cheek pressed against the laminated desktop and his fingers just draping over the laminated plywood edge that is the same edge that curves around to dig slightly into his ribcage, which is tilted so his lower spine stays in contact with the molded contours of the glossy sea green chair that curves around to where his thighs begin and rises slightly just where his legs need to rise and rounds off gently and ends where his legs need to bend down to the floor so that if this is a lesson in how something harder and something softer can achieve a mutuality if the harder thing has a curvature that suggests an accommodating mindset and the softer thing is willing to relinquish some measure of contingency so the softer thing can come temporarily to rest. And if a test were devised on the subject of this lesson, then what would be gained for one who took this test and passed it or one who took this test and failed? Ignaz infers... Her head reared back in an animal posture. Ignaz, as always, obliged. Miss May, more modest, still in her stockings. Ignaz thought again of the wild carnation, of the equable nature his friend had described that rainy night. Question, what is it that you're testing? Question, is there a white spot at which you will bend? Ignat's pursuer. Actually, let me not read that one. Let me read this one instead. The subject, Ignat's. Even as a lawn or tree is more attractive when configured as individual leaves than as a seamless green integument. <clears throat> Asbestos interlude, the rubber button replumps itself. The pin pokes through the black wax and scratches the bottom of the pan. All the unseen valves of the night click open, a blue-violet pour down a fretless throat. There can be no launch, only trajectory in this elastic room. X as a function of distance from Ignatz. She opens the door. He is 12 inches away. Her fingers still splayed across the battened down brass latch of his sternum. She closes the door. He is eight feet away. Her palm skids down the banister, clings to the fluted globe of the finial. He is 28 feet away. She opens the door. The black air is fast flowing and cold. She closes the door. She clutches her thin intimacy tight under her chin and trips down the steps. He is 40 feet away. The stiff wind palpably stripping his scent from her hair. From the numb fingers she raises to her mouth. A cab pulls up. She opens the door. She bends the body 
Hitherto upright, she closes the door. The cracked brown vinyl, he is 90 feet away, biting the backs of her thighs, red blotches suffusing her cheeks. I'm sorry, please stop, she says. He is 400 feet away. Please stop the cab. She opens the door. The cab stops. She pushes a 20 through the slot. He is 700 feet away. She closes the door. The husk of something dry and light falls to the sidewalk, crumbles away. She opens the door. He is two feet away. She closes the door. The Death of Ignaz. Scratched in the plexi of the defunct jukebox, God, I was such a simple song. Oh, Ignatz, won't you flee? Uh, sorry, uh, this is section four. This is the forest. Oh, Ignatz, won't you flee into the wither wander woods, cower in a covert until the coast is clear? A silver-leafed bower of shivering shade, I will weave you a shelter of my living hair. Ignatz Domesticus. Then one day, she noticed the forest had begun to bleed into her waking life. There were curved metal plates on the trees to see around corners. She thought to brush her hand against his thigh. She thought to trace the seam of his jeans with her thumbnail. The supersaturated blues were beginning to pixelate around the edges to become a kind of grammar. She placed a saucer of water under her lamp and counted mosquitoes as they drowned. Soot amassed in drifts in the corners of the room. She pressed her thumb into the hollow of his throat for a while and then let him go. So sweetly slumbers Ignatz in his sylvan bower. Bivouac, a leaf hammock, long leaves of daylilies knotted into a mat. Breeze, breeze, a dappling breeze, sunlight, pitter-patter, the silver birch trees, a canopy so cunningly wrought of cobwebs, a creeping fig, but there a black blot against a green, a green bough, a policeman's glove by a spiraling tendril suspended so that an insolent sunbeam does not strike upon the silver cheek of Ignatz, no, does not shine like glass. A theory of Ignatz. To say that Ignatz floats at the level of the neighbor is really to assert his status as denominator, i.e., he is a plane tilted at the ecliptic, both in its sense of inclination at an angle of 23 degrees, 27 minutes, and also in its palimpsestic sense, with the scrim of the Latin root ecliptica, line, coyly veiling 
the Greek ekleiptikos, to fail to appear. Ignat's incarcerated. Suddenly, separate, mirrors, six, story, cell block, Ignat's, entrance, squadron, paper, planes, snow, squaws, promise, war, invisible Ignats. I would forget you were it not that unseen flutes keep whistling the curving phrases of your body. Winged Ignats. There are 27 feathers. There are 15 feathers on the right shoulder blade, 12 on the left, curving outwards, then streaming down the back. When I say feathers, I mean to say lines, undulating lines, more like hair than like feathers, since, unlike feathers, these lines do not convey a ruched or corrugated effect, as might be rendered by layered tiers of scallops or by a fingered edge. Instead of lines, I might more precisely have said cuts, discontinuous cuts dotted with blood clots. Flinches cluster at the clots like mayflies as one imagines the blade snagging in the skin where the cuts cross one another. Mayflies, too, are winged, but no one wants them unless to convey a sense of the ephemeral, a fan of surface scratches that splay across the shoulders but do not break the skin, merely exhortatory, inviting one to read the underlying cuts as dimensional on the verge of lifting out of the skin, unfurling above the shoulders, lines of blood fleshing themselves, then feathering themselves in strength and mass, rivaling the body, muscle-bound, that submitted to give them birth. The Death of Ignaz. The architect leapt from the bright bell tower, and the sea slunk back to her cage. I'll end with uh, Ignaz's pop quiz. Question one. A tetherball is swinging in a horizontal circle around a pole attached with a two-meter-long massless rope. Question two. Tell me when you can feel this. Thank you very much.
Oh, so the question is, how often do I write? I write every day. Uh, I don't write every day. I tend to write in kind of grand spurts. Um, often when, you know, I try to take time off every year, like a month or so every year to, uh, to write. And in the meantime, you know, I do try to write in my, um, in my notebook, you know, to keep track of little dribs and drabs of things and to feel like, um, like, you know, in a way you want to think of yourself as super saturating a solution. You want to just keep things in suspension until you have the chance to have them sort of precipitate out um, and to just, you know, be able to sit down and no distractions, just write. Um, and that's kind of how I feel my process goes. I tend to, like, build up really a lot of things and then to, uh, then to just kind of go for it. Like, um, a lot of this book was written over about a two-month period where I had taken two months off of work um, just to kind of hole up at a colony and get work done. I'm glad that you mentioned writing in a notebook because mm -hmm. that's something that I've been making or trying to make my big undergraduate class do, you know, write little observations. So you see the value of that? So I wondered how you got started. Were you just, uh, you know, thumbing through George Harriman and got the idea, or? Yeah, I think I was. I just happened to be thumbing uh, through George Harriman and got the idea. I had just been driving across country, across the desert, uh, to visit a friend of mine who lived in Tucson, which is uh, very close to um, very close to uh, the actual setting of where Harriman. Uh, did his uh, did his comics, which is Coconino County, Arizona, and there's something I think I write best when I'm in an unfamiliar landscape. I think most people do, where things kind of details sort of intrude on you, and you say, "Wait a second, what is that corner? Oh, that's that's the corner of a of a building of a type I haven't seen before, or of an architecture I haven't seen before." Uh, you there's this sense of heightened uh, consciousness. And so I was kind of in that state of consciousness still from uh, this sensory overload of driving across the country uh, along old Route 66. And, um, and so I got to this friend's house, and we had a week or so to just spend walking in the desert. And uh, he happened to have a, a copy of Crazy Cat there. And, you know, Crazy Cat, I think, surprised me when I first uh, looked at it because, um, you know, it had... I had known that a lot of artists uh, and writers uh, are influenced by it. Uh, e. Cummings wrote about it. Uh, Moreau and Kandinsky uh, cite it as a reference. And so I kind of knew about the reputation of this strip, but I expected it to be a lot more polished looking, a lot more kind of graphic. And instead, it's very sketchy. It's very, you know, the, the line of it is very fluid uh, and fluidly drawn. And... Um, and, you know, I was kind of thinking about that, and then the actual figure of Ignatz in, in the book is really like, he's a serious, he's like, you know, one oval for the head, two ovals for the ears, an oval for the body, a little oval for the nose, and two dots for eyes and some, you know, arms and legs. And the amount of expression that is able to get out of those lines and the way in which this figure is able to convey so much rage and energy and uh, just out of that very simple... Um, 
sketch. And so I was kind of thinking about that and the way in which um, meaning kind of accumulates on uh, on this kind of a figure. And the simpler the figure, maybe the better or the more amenable it is to that kind of accumulation. Um, other questions? In the back? think that um, inspiration is probably not the best word for it. Um, there are a couple of um, there are a couple of instances in here that are informed by work I have done as an attorney, but just you know, like I happened to do those when I was an attorney, as opposed to you know, I might be walking down the street one day as not an attorney and have an experience that would also uh, inspire a poem. And I think those two poems, Ignat's Incarcerated, which I read, read which was the kind of grid of words, was um, was uh, written based on a visit I had to San Quentin when I was working for a judge. And I think my task for this judge was to go there and to uh, go into administrative segregation, which is also known as solitary confinement, and figure out... Um, what uh, what will be considered an excessive degree of force to remove a prisoner in administrative segregation from a cell who didn't want to be removed from the cell. This was a lawsuit that had been brought by a prisoner who had been extracted unwillingly from um, ADSEG. They had, broken, uh, they had broken his arm, they had sprained his ankle, uh, he had dreadlocks, they had ripped a lot of them out of his head. Um, and so what is considered to be an excessive force <laughs> under those circumstances? But, you know, that, that backstory has nothing whatsoever to do with the poem I ended up writing, which was much more about the structure of a cell block, a six-story cell block, because I think what you don't understand when you... What I wouldn't have understood about being in jail is the way in which you, if you're up against the, you can't see who's coming on the left and the right. You can't see unless someone is directly in front of your cell because you can't crane your neck off of, obviously outside the bars. And so someone can be coming and you can hear them, but you won't be able to see them. And so, you know, I walk into this six story cell block um, and, you know, prisoners hear a woman's voice, which they're not used to hearing. And so suddenly I get, um, every one of them seems to have a little metal pocket mirror. So all of a sudden there's this wall of mirrors as six stories of prisoners are putting their, um, are putting their uh, mirrors out to kind of use a periscope to see, um, to see them coming. And then as soon as they see that like, I'm a woman, there's this, like, this snowstorm of paper planes, uh, you know, as they're all just sending notes. And so it was just like... You know, and it was just such a such a visually startling um, thing to see that uh, that you know kind of inspired part of the poem. I'm sure I'll end up writing about it more directly, but that was kind of what was rooted in my head. But with regard to I think other, um, I think with regard to other, uh, you know, a, a more theoretical uh, engagement of law and writing. Uh, I think a lot about the practice of writing and the practice of law. Uh, I'm a First Amendment lawyer, and uh, one, th you know, right now I'm working on responding to a case where the Supreme Court, in essence, gave First Amendment free speech rights to corporations, uh, who, in my opinion, were not meant to have uh, First Amendment rights. And so I think about this concept, the First Amendment or free speech, and the way that gets deployed in a way that 
really almost emptied it, empties it of meaning. Uh, you know, it gets applied to situations. Um, this is kind of what Nietzsche says about a concept that um, at the end of, uh, you know, the process of conceptualization is one of taking this concept and stripping it of its guts, basically, leaving just this kind of shell of itself, this, uh, this faceless uh, placeholder. And so the, you know, the concept of the First Amendment becomes a placeholder for whatever the Supreme Court wants to fill it with. And, uh, and in, the, you know, in somewhat of the same way, the concept of Ignatz becomes a placeholder for whatever the speaker is thinking about desire uh, or about obsession on that particular day. Um, there's something about, you know, I, I would distinguish obsession from real love in that way, in that, you know, obsession is about emptying out the object um, and just making that object a panacea, kind of universally applicable to any situation. Um, I was thinking as you were reading that, that there was sort of a double voice going on with the Ignatz. It wasn't, an, not a, it wasn't an empty signifier. And wondering, you know, how the, that it was both an empty signifier and also a signifier of this cartoon character at the same time, which is a, a weird mental procedure that mm-hmm. happens as I'm imagining, because it would be different if it was like not Ignatz but um, Dick Cheney yeah. or something, right? I would be having a different experience. It wouldn't, um, and so I wonder if uh, I wonder how you think about that sort of doubledness of, of, of emptying and then also total concreteness. Mm-hmm. I think it's like you take, you know, you take an object and you take another object and you put them next to each other and you see what the relationship of those objects are. I think, you know, when people ask me, like, what was the inspiration for this book, uh, I'll generally go back to something in the visual arts, you know, the people who put a figure against a landscape. And in particular, uh, you know, one thing that came to mind, which I remember thinking that is exactly what I'm trying to do, uh, was um, a friend of mine who's a painter, um, her, uh, her lover died, uh, and he was French, and she had done a series of, um, of you know, of landscapes or of cityscapes, um, and in them there was a, this very sketchy figure of Napoleon, which was how she, uh, how, I guess, the symbol of her lover in her mind, and, you know, he was wearing his little tricorn hat, he's all in black, it's just a, just a very, you know, like a brushstroke, almost a signature. Uh, and so to see that um, to see that figure in this variety of contexts, and to see like each of them, and then here's Napoleon brooding in the corner with his tricorn hat. Um, what is that? You know, what is that resonance that's added there? What does it mean to take the same mouse and to put him in? You know, um, you know, in this he we have the mouse at you know in the ghost town. We have the mouse at the forest. We have the mouse in prison. Uh, we have the mouse being, you know, d- discussed in, you know, in heroic language. Uh, you know, what does it mean to take this figure that already has a certain amount of uh, cultural outline and to um, to put him in context? And so, it was, you know, it's experimental in that way. And I'm not saying that I have an answer for that, but that was kind of what I was interested in doing. Um, other questions? Well, thank you.
Thank you so much. Thank you.